This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. But it's really lovely to have Zoe here. Now, I don't know if you heard what happened with Zoe. I was at home, and I got a text from first Zoe, and then Hannah, who's not here, saying Zoe's been involved in a head-on car crash. So, you know, you put head-on and car crash together, and you think, oh, my word, what's going on? And um, so I thought, well, I want maybe a nurse's text, because, you know, it's critical text your pastor I'm gonna die I didn't know what it was about so I, I, I text back and said how are you and she said well I'm, I'm a casualty and um, anyway long story short is by the time we'd finished uh, text interaction she said they're letting me out and I'm and I'm going home so a head-on collision uh, Zoe walked out with literally a thing there a thing here where they checked her blood and she, oh, yeah, she was cut out of the car. Head-on collision with a Land Rover. Let's big it up. Cut out with the car. <laughs> what, was, what was funny was, I mean, uh, Zoe was a little bit shaken up, to say the least. And she said, oh, I think the devil's having a, having a go. And I said, Zoe, you've had a head-on collision. You've got up and walked away with just a bruise. I don't think he was doing that well. <laughs> so, so, Zoe, well done. It's great to see you here. You were perfectly entitled to stay in bed this week, as some have done. Uh, but Zoe's got a bus and got a lift, so Zoe, it's lovely to have you here. Okay, this this week. If you're a teacher, you probably clocked it. Uh, if you've got kids, you probably clocked it. But it was basically this, a, a letter that was sent out to school leavers, year six, so 11-year-old school leavers, from a school called Barravale School, Barravale Primary School. And they just received their year six stats. Now, obviously, st- do you teach year six? Last year. Last year. Obviously, if year six stats, are, the whole school's reputation is based on how these poor blighters do in their tests. Uh, and so this massive amount of pressure, pump, 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 you know, want them to get through this. And, but the, the letter that went home with the stats results, I, I thought was really, really nice. Some of you may have heard it, but let me read it to you. Please find enclosed your end of key stage two test results. We're very, it's from the head teacher, by the way, to the kids. We're very proud of you as you demonstrated huge amounts of commitment and tried your very best in what was a tricky week. However, we are concerned that these tests do not assess all of what make you special and unique. The, the people who create these tests, boo hiss, and score them do not know each of you the way your teachers do, the way I hope to, and the, certainly not the way your families do. It's a, this is a, a mixed-race Muslim school. They do not know that many of you speak two languages. They don't know that you can play a musical instrument or that you can dance or paint a picture. 
They don't know that your friends count on you to be there for them and that your laughter can brighten even their dreariest day. They don't know that you can write poetry or songs or play or participate in sports, wonder about the future, or that sometimes you take care of your little brother and sister after school. They don't know that you've traveled to some really neat places or that you can tell a great story or that you love spending time with special family members and friends. They don't know that you can be trustworthy, kind and thoughtful and and that you try every day to do your very best. Sorry, that's my phone. (laughs) The scores you get will tell you something, but they will not tell you everything. So enjoy your results and be proud of those, but remember there are many ways of being special. You like that? I really like that. Uh, and, but why don't you turn to your neighbour and say, why do, why do we like that? What is it about that letter that, that we like? If your kids had done sats, even if they'd done, got sixes, I think they can get now, uh, or they'd done poorly, whatever their scores, why, why does that letter work for you? Why don't you turn to your neighbour and just say why that worked? Okay, why do we like it? It's affirming. Yes, John, anyone else want to play? Good, it says the school's not worried about themselves. Character over gifting. Go on, Andy, what do you mean? Obviously not referring to anyone in any particular family. <laughs> at all. Yes, certain people in our families are pretty good at getting A's, and certain people, are, well, certain of us are less good. I, I liked it because I never, ever got an A. I never, ever got top marks in anything. But you know that you're more than that. Uh, there's that kind of line in Gladiator that says, um, you know, there are many qualities, but none of your qualities were on my list. If you remember that, where the father's talking to the, the son. And actually, the reason why I think I like it is because the world wants to tell you, and you don't need many hints to be told that you're not enough. Let me just say that again. You don't need many opportunities f- to be told that you're not enough. Um, there's something about the sort of exam system, there's something about our kind of meritocratic, competitive, ladder-climbing world that actually you're always scoring yourself. Whether you like it or not, you're always scoring yourself. And And the bottom line is, you always feel you're never enough. You're never enough. I read a great book about vulnerability, which I was really tempted to run off and talk about, but I'm not. But she writes this, uh, Brenny Brown, she uh, did a TED Talk. She says that we don't find it very difficult to put words between never and enough. So she just comes up with a list. She says we can put words like never good enough, never successful enough, never thin enough, never rested enough, never have enough. Never accepted enough. Worst of all, never loved enough. And I thought, it's so true, isn't it? Why I liked that uh, letter is because it resonated that actually there's, that, that there's more to us than what, what's scored. There's more to us than what we're keeping score on. Um, but actually, I think that the, this kind of never enough culture forces us apart. It forces us apart. Because we're endless competition... And comparison fragments society. We're always in competition with each other. Even when we try not to be in competition with each other, we are. 
You know, you get a bunch of church leaders together and, and they're immediately asking you, what? How many is in your church? There's a never enough. And I remember talking to guys with huge churches and they've never got enough. Because it's that classic line, isn't it, from, um, that I've mentioned many times from Cool Runnings where the guy talked about gold medal and he says, if you're not enough, does anyone know it? Without a gold medal, you'll never be enough with one. And the fact is that we're, we're actually find ourselves turned in, looking at ourselves, questioning, why am I missing something? Why is there something wrong with me? That You all do that. You all feel like, uh, uh, and so what it does is it's created, instead of an us society, it's created a me society. Me and my results. Me and my progress. Me and my success. Me and my popularity. Me and my Facebook likes. Me and my followers on Twitter. Me, me, me and my way of measuring how valuable I am. It's left us with lots of individual little me's. Little mini-me's, little disconnected little me's. Derek Worthington, uh, who wrote a book that I've quoted from before, he said this, and I, I mentioned this last time I was speaking, he says, in a world like this, the people around us are nothing more than the supporting cast in a movie called My Life. <clears throat> in a world like this, the people around us are nothing more than the supporting cast in a movie called My Life. Background extras, recurring roles... It's really about you, and everybody else is the supporting cast. They play cameo appearances and little vignettes, I think is the word. I was tempted to say vinaigrettes, which I think is something different. <laughs> vignettes in the story of you. Yeah, when I spoke at the PAC, um, somebody came to me and said, I found that really interesting about this kind of, whose story are you in? That you're tired and exhausted because you're trying to be in your own story. Um, and what I loved about this letter is that it gave value to relationships. It gave value to those things that it's really hard to measure. And I've said here uh, many times, if you've been around, that actually you are ultimately defined by your relationships. There's lots of people who can be as successful and do the things that you do. But no one else sits in the network of relationships that you have. No one else. And when you're gone, there's a space. People can fill your jobs. My father's died when I was 17. People filled his jobs. You know, people have filled, but then no one filled his space that he left. Actually, only God can fill that space. And so we find this challenge, don't we? So, so I loved it when it says, nobody knows, they, the faceless bureaucrats, don't know that your friends count on you to be there for them and that your laughter can brighten the dreariest day. They don't know that sometimes you take care of your little brother or sister after school. They don't know that you love spending time with family members and friends. We are the network of our relationships. I want to speak this morning uh, on, on friendship. Now, I've spoken on friendship and community loads in this church, but we get, we're in the, the, the story of David, and, and we're in chapter 18. And the first four or five verses of chapter 18 about a story of uh, a relationship between David and Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan is... Uh, the son of the king. We didn't, have, we didn't do his bit of the story, but if you don't know, Jonathan actually took an opportunity, him and his buddy, his armor bearer. There's a massive army uh, camped up on an outpost on a cliff, and Jonathan and his armor bearer uh, go, where all the rest of Israel are kind of disengaged, Jonathan and his armor bearer go and set a victory in motion. They say, maybe the Lord will help us. 
nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many by few. For Jonathan's like, a kind of, is a cool guy. And David, as we know, the last time we spoke, uh, we heard about David, is David has just killed Goliath. But let me just say something about Jonathan and David and Jonathan. If you Google David and Jonathan friendship, you'll probably find about 50% of those pages suggest it's a homosexual relationship. Now, I mean, there's kisses in there. David kisses Jonathan. But at the end, when, David, uh, when Jonathan dies, David says, uh, I've loved Jonathan more than I've loved women. So you can see that there's maybe a little hint there. But just, yeah, thank you, Joe. Just a bro- but I think the interesting thing is, it's very sad when our society says that actually that, that sex is the ultimate friendship. That actually if you're not having sex, you're not really connected. Because I observe that there's more and more people having sex and more and more people who are lonely and disconnected and atomized in our society. Actually, the kisses would be a, a typical greeting in that culture. Uh, that that they kiss each other on both cheeks. That often a king or someone in power, a father, would kiss his children. And so the king would kiss the, the subjects, whereas nowadays, you, you know, in the old days, medieval times, you would kiss the, the ring of the, of the pope or the king. In those days, the king would show favor to you by kissing. And it's not that kind of French kissing kind of thing. It's a kiss on both cheeks or whatever. But actually, it's interesting that Paul, when he was in the church in Ephesus... And he'd said, he'd said elsewhere in, uh, that I've shared not only the gospel with you, but also our lives. And he says, I'm never going to see you again. It's not like Facebook is there or anything's there. He's on the beach and he's about to go. And it says they, they held him and wept and kissed him. We've got to understand that it's not all that. The only affection can't be going in sexual directions. And actually, his love to me is more precious than the love of women. I believe that even without being um, kind of super spiritual about it, there is a love that's more precious than women. For me, as a bloke. Yeah? What's that love? We've got to believe that the love of Jesus is more precious to us than women. It's a love that lasts. My wife, Naomi, and I, uh, um, when, when I die, our marriage is over. Marriage is just for this life, but the love of Jesus, nothing could separate us from this love. There is a love. We know that, that can be greater than the love of women. So I don't believe that this is, this is about um, sexual, homosexual practice. It's not a justification for that. I think it's a shock for 21st century thinking that there is a higher expression of love and intimacy than sex. But Christ-like, self-giving love is a higher love than that. But let's just read a few verses and then let's go to work. So 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. After David... I put in brackets in my notes, still holding the head of Goliath. So if you read chapter 17, he kills Goliath and he's walking around with the head and sword of Goliath, which is an interesting concept. So David, after still holding the head of Goliath, ha- had finished talking with Saul. What happened is Saul had said to him, I don't, who, are, who is this guy? And Jonathan's observing this conversation. It says, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and loved him. It's brilliant. He loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him. So the king keeps David with him and did not let him return to his family. But Jonathan 
made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. So it repeats that twice. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and his sword and his bow and his belt. The actual word, they became one in spirit, is actually, the, the word is literally, they were knitted together. They were woven together. They were welded together. There's a sense where David and Jonathan were welded together and the covenant they make was, uh, the only kind of vestige we've got of that now is marriage. So don't, but don't, think they would, it's another, that's saying it's homosexual. But there's a sense of, there was a covenant they made to be friends together. They made a covenant, made a promise to, to, to be united together, to stand together, to share life together, to have community together. And in the Near East, actually, the classic covenants were between nations uh, or tribes or powerful rulers. They usually involved an agreement between two unequal parties. So the strong uh, the strong king would make an agreement or a covenant with the weaker king. The strong king would protect the weaker king, and the weaker king would swear loyalty. Or that would happen between tribes or family members. They'd make this covenant uh, of protection and promise and blessing in return for loyalty. And actually, that, that language is often used in the Bible. So, so we hear God, the great king, makes a covenant with us who are totally unworthy. Makes a covenant with da- uh, Abraham. And he, he says, look, I love you and bless you and protect you. So this idea of covenant was quite strong in their society. So they made this really strong, powerful agreement. Yeah, so you get this idea that they became like blood brothers. They became like we're together. And what's really interesting is that, that Jonathan, the son of the king, and David, the son of the shepherd. So the, the, just obviously the first thing is their friendship crosses social barriers. Their friendship crosses social barriers. Our society is divided up into little groups and little classes and, and people, but their friendship crosses social barriers. And it's one of the things that the church should do. The church should cross social barriers. It shouldn't be that we're all of one type of person, all white, middle class, educated or whatever in the church, and then there's another church for another type of people. No, what we need is that the, the church is to be a, 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 a multicolored rainbow of God's people. And one of the challenges of the early church was the Jews and the Gentiles wouldn't get together. You know, it's still happening, isn't it? Gaza Strip, we say every week, this kind of war here to phone in on the radio, guy from Gaza, an Arab from Gaza, a Jew from Tel Aviv, and they started quite quietly, and within 30 seconds they were shouting at each other. And the 4,000 years of arguments... But what happened is when the gospel came, when the gospel came, Paul says Jew and Gentile are together. He said this about them, he says in Ephesians 2. He says, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace who made the two one. So same word actually, knitted together, welded together, joined together, made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new person out of two. Now, we don't, we don't necessarily have Jew and Gentile, but we do have some divisions in our church. What are the obvious, not, I'm not talking about divisions where we fight each other, but obvious differences in this church between people? I've put this, young and old. And if you're older, calf, yes, thank you. For, you, you can feel, am I now not cool? Am I now not, am I out? Am I out? Because in is that age. What about singles and families? Hear this. 
What I notice is when I was Joe single, and my friend became Joe married, and suddenly I'm on my own. I got married at 31. And that is a really interesting division because you cross from, I'm in this group called the singles, and then suddenly you're in this group called the marrieds. Yeah? And then there's another group called the, the I've just had a baby. Do you see what I'm saying? How these things can easily creep in. I'm not saying that's bad or good, it's just the way it is. You can feel the difference between the athletic and the tubby. Yeah? <laughs> so again, the Kellets are a great example. <laughs> you know? Uh, I'm working on it, but Nags is really working on it. She's, so you can feel the difference between the, the comfortably off and those that are struggling. That is real in this church. It's real in this church. And you can feel the difference between those who are, who are, who are educated and those perhaps who haven't so educated. And that's real in this church. And as the church gets bigger, we'll get, real, get bigger. And we've got to make sure that we're like Jonathan, that we reach across the barrier. You think, well, actually, J- Jonathan didn't really reach across the barrier because David's a celebrity. But actually, uh, uh, Jonathan's the son of the king and David's the son of a shepherd. But he reached across the barrier. Jonathan makes the reach. Actually, David doesn't reach to Jonathan. Jonathan reaches to David. And we need to make sure that we do that. One of the things I observe as a church is that we're quite good at reaching across the barrier for a couple of weeks. Maybe three or four. And then we kind of think, well, you're on your own. Now, if you feel, poor old me, no one speaks to me, that you need to say, I'm going to be a Jonathan and reach across the barrier. But we can be very, very friendly with people and connect with people and go across the room and say hello. But after two, three weeks, they're on their own. I said, didn't I, Jesus makes the first move. In salvation, he, he lays aside his majesty and becomes friends with us. He reaches out to us. So although it's easier for some of us to reach out, it's easier for Jonathan to reach out to David than for David to reach out to the son of the king. The fact is we all need to reach out to each other. Jesus puts it really challenging like this about who we have our meals with. Jesus said, next time you put on a dinner, it actually said in the NIV, a luncheon, which felt far too middle class for me. I thought, I've never put on a luncheon. Next time you have a takeaway, would that work at God first? I don't know. Do not invite your friends and family or rich neighbours. Oh, I have got rich neighbours. Uh, <laughs> the kind of people who will return the favour. Invite some people who will never get invited out. The misfits from the wrong side of the tracks. Then uh, Eugene Peterson says in the message, you'll be blessed and experience a blessing. They won't be able to return the favour, but the favour will be returned to you at the resurrection of God's people. Wow. I wrote this. Church has little to do with mutual compatibility. Similarities in education, background, makeup, social status can bring us together, but they're never the basis for community. Community is grounded in, fill in the word, God. Not the attractiveness of people to each other. It's a challenge for us all. There are loads of groups in society that, that get together and form connections for out of self-interest, aren't they? Lots of groups. You can name groups. Most communities in society get together and wall up because of self-interest. We are these people and you're those people. 
And we belong here. And this is our sense of belonging. You're in the golf club and you can't afford to be in the golf club. Yeah, or whatever those barriers are. And we, and we, wall, we wall up those things with a mag- against magic intuitors, but that is not the Christian community walled up to finding our identity by saying we're not that. Too often Christian community has made its, formed its identity saying we're against that and we're against that and we're against that. But actually what we should say is we're four people. We're four people. We're open. The mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the church is that precisely it should embrace and it does embrace all peoples, breaking down walls of self-interest and creating a new space for people to meet God, whatever they're like. This is what Jesus did, didn't he? It brings together people who are different. We see in the early church a dynamic group of a whole mixture of people brought together not by their similarities but by Jesus. But actually, should you just be friends with everyone? You can't, clearly you can't be friends with everyone. You know, just the number of friends you can't be. We probably, and it's interesting when Andy's giving the notices very well, he said, oh, on Sunday morning, you can't really get to know each other. I think on a Sunday morning like this, if you don't know everyone's name, whoa, you know. Because you, you, can, you, can, you can learn about 120 names probably, and you can have about 20 meaningful relationships. But actually, you can't be friends with everyone. But who should you be friends with? Having said that you shouldn't choose it on social status or people I think they're like me, I'll just have my friendship time with them. Jonathan and David choose relationship, uh, Jonathan chooses relationship on David, I think, because he's, cause they're both similar and that they're both men of faith. I said before that Jonathan's a mighty man of faith. He went to the, routed the Philistine outpost with just one sword. And David, obviously, standing there with the head of Goliath in his hand, uh, had said... The battle belongs to the Lord. I think that what Jonathan saw something in David that says, I want to be with that person. I don't think he said, I want to be with him because he's, he's famous, he's a celebrity now, or because he's got money, or because he's athletic or whatever. I think that, and this is, you allow this one, I want to be with that person because they do me good in God. There's something about people that you think, I want to be with them. Now, I, I don't feel that about many people, but say, for example, PJ Smythe. I don't know if you remember two years ago, South African, well, English guy, lives in South Africa. I just want to be around him because he just does you good. He's just encouraging and positive and, and he's just great to be around. And you think, oh, I want to be with you. You do me good. Actually, I'm not too negative, but, but compared to him, I think I want to be with him. And then there's other people you think, I don't want to be with you. You're always moaning, you're always negative, you're always critical, you're always pulling things down, you're always, you're always got, there's always something that's wrong, there's always something that's not right, and I think, you know, it, it, it's no good. You don't want to be with those people. We want friends that center us on Jesus, not drag us into apathy. It's amazing. I found it really interesting at the wedding yesterday how much airtime Jesus got. It wasn't like he got like 20, 15 minutes in the wedding service. He was there all the time, mentioned in the speeches, mentioned all the time, conversations about it. Now you could say, well, it's quite kind of elitist Christian, but it wasn't really. It was just, he just Jesus was there, he got mentioned all the time. You think, oh, I don't want to be with people who Jesus, Jesus is just a little, in, a little bit in the corner, some little bit for uh, a, a, an hour on a Sunday. You think, no, I want, I want to be with somebody whose Jesus is, is invading and pervading their life. Do you want to be with people like that? There are people like that in this church, and you think you want to be with them. 
I don't want to be people who never get changed by the gospel. Same old problem, same old thing. They're sitting in their three. This is not anybody's three who I've been in in here. But they're sitting in their three and they're saying, oh, I'm still struggling with that. Oh, I've still got an issue with that. Or my mind still works with that. And you think, no, let the gospel change you. It's not going to happen immediately. But you don't want people to say, oh, poor old me. The world's against me. I'm never going to win. I don't want to be people who don't want to, don't want to show up. It's not a dig at people who are not here. But you don't want to be with people who say, I, I don't want to show up. One of the things that I find challenging about our gospel communities is that we don't show up. Why don't we show up? I would say part of the reason we don't show up is because actually we're too busy with the story of me. But actually we've got to say, no, I want to be with, people, with God's people who are going to do me good. Now if you think it's terrible, it may be that you're a moaner, it, uh, it may be they think, come on, let's do some stuff. Let's get missional, let's make disciples, let's get mobile. If that's a frustration, bring it to the group and let's get going. But let's not just not go. Let's be with people who say, they do me good. Well, interestingly, that, that, that Jonathan makes a commitment that's like a family commitment. So his, his natural father, Saul, he, he, he makes a commitment to David that's stronger than family. And you know I've talked about this before. That nuclear family or, or kind of natural family is massive in our society. The small family of, you know, one, or, one parent, two parents and a few kids. That's where, we, that's where we focus. But David is saying, no, my commitment is not going to be to my father. Whoa, shocking in that culture. My commitment is going to be to this guy, this random guy who's full of God. So actually Saul gets absolutely furious about it. It says this in 1 Samuel 20, verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, that's a right old go here, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't know why his mother gets involved there, but I guess it's kind of cussing your mother is the way it used to be done at school when I was around, so maybe that's what they're doing. Don't I know that you've sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame? And the shame of the mother who bore you. You're supposed to be with this family. You're supposed to be connected to this family and you've sided with that family. You're supposed to be with this natural family and you've decided with a gospel family. And Saul's furious. Why is Saul furious? Because actually Jonathan is just a little player in his little me story. Saul's problem, if you read it, is actually that he's just, he hates David because he thinks David's going to spoil his story. The Saul story is, it's all about me, the new king, I'm a head and shoulders guy, it's all about me, and my son Jonathan, he's going to have everything, and my name's going to go on forever because it's all about me and my name. And so he wants to kill David because David is an interruption to that story. Because So he's, he's driven by jealousy and comparison and anger and all that kind of selfish, atomized me stuff that I talked about. But Jonathan's not like that. Jonathan's friendship with David is going to cost him his me story. I think that's saying you need to get going, Howard. Okay. <laughs> that's your five-minute warning. Okay. What is it? For, Dave, for Jonathan to love David, for Jonathan to love David, it's his way of saying, actually, I love David more than I love my chance to be king. That's what's on the scales. 
Jonathan, you can be king. Well, kill David, you can be king. And he lays all that kingship down to befriend us, someone, a, a shepherd, basically. Jesus says that, lays his kingship down to befriend us who are unworthy. But it's not that... And so that, that becomes, the, that, that family becomes the, the, main, the main thing for, for Jonathan. And if we're building that kind of gospel community, that family of the church, and real friendships, we're swimming against the cultural tide. I think we're wired by our culture to make most of our life's choices based on what? Me. A little bit about family. Most of our life choices are based on me and my family. At best, there's space for, in that story for a partner, two kids and a dog. At worst, relationships are what? Disposable. Two-thirds, two-thirds of uh, kids experience some sort of family breakup. 49% of children now, was it 49 or was it 60? I can't remember. Kids born whose parents aren't married. There's a disposableness about our relationships. Because we're wired to say, if you don't fit with my story, you're gone. We're selfishly focused on our own story. Uh, Derek uh, Worthington in his book said, the space for our relationships has become so small as we make those me choices. So we move, don't we? We move to other jobs, other houses, other towns, other churches. And what we do is we tell ourselves we'll make new friends to replace the old ones. This is not a dig at you, lovely people, by the way. But I just observed that we feel that friendship and relationship is disposable. So one of the things that I've observed, that one of the challenges for me is, as we've moved to plant churches... I haven't realized how much it's cost me to leave my friends behind. So I'm 54 now. I'm not saying I haven't got any friends. I'm not saying poor old me, you know, whatever. But, but I've left friends behind who I shared life with. I've left friends behind who I was in threes with, who knew my stuff and loved me, and I knew their stuff and loved them, and we challenged each other in the gospel. I heard one of my friends, who seems like all his friends have left him, he's on antidepressants now. And I think, man, there's a whole way you, you used to be. And I've done them, and I can say, well, I've done them for gospel reasons, to plant churches, and it's a very noble thing. But I, I thought, even I was thinking this morning and prayed about that, I know mur- it's a murky pool is motives, isn't it? But am I the sort of person who values opportunities more than relationships? Are you the sort of person that does that? Are you the sort of person that actually takes an opportunity and says, well, I'm okay, I'll make friends afterwards? Now, when you're 20 and 30, you think that's fine because you might do and you maybe will. But when you get to 50 and 60, actually those friends that you thought, oh, well, I'll find another one like that, you find you don't find another one like that. Derek Worthington, in this book that I'm quoting from, he says this, in recent data... We've learned that the average American moves every 4.2 years. That's massive, isn't it? Every four years moving. 
He says the challenge here is it takes years to know someone. And you can't love someone you don't know. So people with families turn their attention inward. We do a disservice to the scriptures, he says, when we reduce family to two kids and a dog. That is not community. We're called to be part of a larger community of faith, which means, that, here's this challenging, tell me what you think, does this sound like a cult or is this gospel? It means we should process the larger decisions in our life in light of our extended community. If I move, how will that impact the church community? How will it impact those I'm sharing my life with? How will it impact those I'm reaching out to in the mission of God? I thought it was interesting. We just move. I'm in this church. I just move. I'm not saying you can't move from here. This is not appeal to not move from here. Some of you will move. And it's not bad to move. Jesus moved out of heaven. It's okay to move. But actually the challenge is we don't want to just say that the relationships don't even tip the scale. Do you understand the point I'm making? Please nod if you understand that. Relationships don't tip the scale. It's all about something else, finance, success, or some kind of comparison, or something that can tell in my SATS results. That's what really motivates us to make moves, and relationships are disposable. I'm appealing to you and say, no, they're not. There's a restlessness in our society which says if I make the move... It'll be better than where I am. We, we're doing that with pates, aren't we? We don't know, do we? We hope, we believe, we trust God. But we think, well, it's news got to be better. But, but, but we can do that. There's a restlessness in society because we're, we're endlessly trying to get this me story. We're trying to fill this never enough gap. And we, we think, well, if, if there's something new, I'll have enough. But actually... There's sometimes we've got to say, look, these relationships, relationships matter. Not just nuclear family relationship, not just man and wife relationship, not just father, father and son and father and daughter relationship, but, but b- real big relationship in the gospel, they matter. And we need to commit ourselves to making them important, making them real. People matters, community matters, family matters. We know, don't we, in the gospel that actually that Jesus didn't send a book, did he? It's interesting, we were in Istanbul, and um, there's an honouring of the book, and there's an honouring of the prophet, but God is very distant in Islam. That's not a dig at Islam particularly, but, but, but there's a reverence of the book. Uh, you know, in other, uh, in other kind of religions, it's kind of ecstatic visions, or in, in Judaism, there's, there's the kind of the rules. But we know, don't we, that God came, and came himself came himself. He doesn't send us a load of instructions. He doesn't send us a manual. He comes himself because actually you can't really know how unique and special he is unless you share a relationship with him. Like about those kids, you can't really know who he is unless you share a relationship with him. I love the fact that Jesus shared his life with, with thousands, but actually shared his life with 12, didn't he? Shared his life with three Threes aren't just a little program that we do in church. Gospel communities aren't just a little thing that we do in church. They're saying, let's share our lives together. But I wouldn't be friends with these people, you say. But that's the whole point. Without Jesus at the center, we wouldn't be friends with each other. You probably wouldn't be friends with me. I'd be friends with you because I'm full of love and grace. But, you know, you wouldn't be friends with me. But the fact is that Jesus shared his life with people unlike him. Even shares his food in the Last Supper with somebody who's going to betray him and kiss him and say, kill him. 
He shares his meals with them, challenges them, laughs with them, embraces with them, cries with them, loves them, heals them, shares his life with them, gives his death for them. He even says greater love as no one than this and he lays down his life for his friends. Have you got any friends that you'd die for? I probably haven't. You probably haven't. Now that might say that we're so sinful and we're so wrapped up in my me story that I wouldn't die for anyone. But we know that some of these mummies, when their kids get older, if Levi runs in the road, Yana's going to run out and get him. Yeah? Even in this oncoming traffic. I'm not prophesying that of Yana, I'm sure you'll be fine. Because <laughs> there's a covenant in love that says, my life is of less value than yours. It said of Jonathan, he loved David as he loved himself. Jesus loves you as he loved himself. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Let me finish with this. A quote from Derek Worthington. When life becomes not whether or not our needs being met, but when it becomes about Jesus-centered community that he's building, then I'm caught up in something eternal that cannot be manufactured by people. Something powerful enough to fill the never-enoughs in my life. Powerful enough to meet my deepest needs, even as I pour myself out for others. Let's stand together. Don't worry, I'm not going to get us to embrace and kiss each other with the kisses and fall on our faces and weep together as David and Jonathan did. But, but I'm, I'm appealing to you to say there is something of that relationship connection that needs to be part of this church. Uh, I've said in other sermons, it's not really church if we're not really friends. We need to have that sense of connection. If you feel disconnected, let me encourage you to make the effort, reach out like Jonathan and connect. If you're not around, if you don't connect, if, then let's connect. We need to find each other in mission together. We need to find each other in discipleship together. I know, I mustn't preach again. Let, let, guys, let's, let's just be still a minute. Mike, if you can play, but don't sing for it just yet. I just want you to examine your story. I want you to ask yourself, what do I put between never and enough? Do I feel that there's more, I'm striving, I'm struggling, I'm in competition, I'm rating myself and I feel I'm never enough? Then Jesus wants to come and say, no, you're enough for me. You're enough for me. I value so much that I died for you. If you think, well, I'm not the sort of person that people might want to friend I don't fit the right demographic or I don't fit the right social group. Jesus says, I want to draw you into relationship with me, the King of Kings. I want to assure you that you're special, that you're valued, that the people on the outside, they don't know. They don't know you can write a poem or they don't know that you've got great friends. They don't know that you're kind and thoughtful. But Jesus knows and he wants to draw you to share that. 
Not to close off, but to share it. Lord Jesus, I just pray now by your spirit that you would put within us that spirit of community. I pray that we'd look around and find a David and a David and a David. People we think, oh, I want to be with them because they do me good in God. I want to be challenged by them. I want to be encouraged by them. I want time with them. I pray, Lord, when the stranger comes in, that we wouldn't be friendly for a week and then ignore them, but that, Lord, that we'd embrace them and say, come and share life with us. In a society that's fragmented and disengaged and broken, I pray this place would be a sticky place where we could find connection and life and shared life together. Lord, we thank you for a love that's greater than any love on earth. We thank you for your love. Now pour it on us, Lord Jesus. If you'd like to be prayed for about any of this stuff, if you feel, man, I, I live with that never enough, or I feel that I'm not accepted, or if you feel that you haven't been great at loving others and you've just cherry-picked those you've related to, we'd love to pray for you. I'm just going to pray for you now, but we'd love to pray for you, and then we're going to sing. Lord, I just pray. I pray for that love that crosses boundaries, that love that reaches out, that love that doesn't discriminate, that love that pours itself out, that love that loves the other as much as we love ourselves, that love that's precious, that love that affects our decision-making, those relationships, those friendships that say, that, that, that weigh in the balance heavy and we don't just fill our story with my stuff and my world. Lord, I pray, make us a relationship community heavy community in Jesus name For more information visit our website at godfirst.org.uk